Welcome back to When Lambs Are Silent, the podcast. You're here with Aaron and Dale. Um, welcome back to the show. How you doing, Dale? Pretty good. And yourself? Yeah, great. Thanks, man. So we're still in our What If series, imagining like what the world could be like if we chose to have the courage to remake it. Uh, how are you enjoying this show, bro, so far? No, it's been good. It's been very challenging. Um, being able to take it back into the, to the real world with life and with friends and, and getting to hash it out, debate it out can get nice and interesting (laughs) but um no it's been good yeah awesome so today we've got a pretty exciting guest on the show we've got jay ruka have you ever heard jay speak before dale uh no and i haven't read his book either actually Uh, guilty so here's the author of hoya come home which is a book that i can't recommend enough it is I guess a book that sort of explores our own history um explores the impact of colonization it explores I guess the church's role in that and both the good stuff and the bad stuff. But I think Jay does a really awesome job of not just examining the hard stuff that has happened in our history, but also articulating a vision forward. And I guess, yeah, laying out a hope for what our future could be like. So yeah, I I loved his book and I, you know, I encourage you to get it. So yeah, who you come home, check that out. But today we we're very lucky to get Jay to come and have a bit of a corridor with us. So I'm looking forward to this. So we'll get into it. Cool. Let's go. Alright, Kyotofano, welcome back to the show. We're really privileged to have Jay Ruka with us today. Hey Jay, how you doing, man? Good about doing good. Want to just hand over to you? Why don't you just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're up to, and yeah, your mahi. Hi, tēnā koe e Aaron. Ko Taranaki tōku maunga, ko Waiunga tōku awa, ko tōku maru tōku waka, ko Tiatiawa, tōku iwi, ko Pokitapu tōku hapu, ko Jay Ruka tōku unga. E nai nei, e noho ana au kei whāngaroa, Raglan. So, yeah, uh, my name's Jay. I whakapapa to Taranaki, to uh, iwi known as Tiatiawa. And uh, I, have, I haven't grown up in the rohe of Taranaki, but I'll be shifting back there next year. Um, but I now live in uh, Raglan with my family down, uh, down here, yeah. So um, what, what do I do? I, I, I have two roles right now. One is I'm working for the last uh, nearly two years with a group called Owati, uh, based in Tamaki, based in Auckland. And um, we do a number of things from education around the story, uh, helping organisations bring mātauranga Māori uh, and a Māori worldview into their workspace, working with organisations like that, telling history, telling story. So that's one thing I do. And I've recently joined the Hahi Mihinari, the uh, Anglican Church, and have taken a role as the co-dean of the Taranaki Cathedral down in uh, Namotu, New Plymouth. And my role there as the co-dean is to help pioneer uh, what's going to be called the Sir Paul Reeves Education Centre. So it's a, sort of a brand new work we've got going on. And so this year is all about um, sort of building a leadership structure for that mahi to happen, which will kick in big time next year. So, yeah. Awesome. Oh, sounds like you're doing a lot, mate. 
Yes, yeah, it's funny, eh? That uh, <laughs> I sort of entered the role week one of the lockdown, actually, and so I've just sort of been living on Zoom, you know. Yeah. <laughs> my little, my little cubby hole here. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Zoom, Zoom's been life uh, over these last few weeks, hasn't it? Zoom, Zoom, Zoom yeah. And you also wrote a book, that yeah, a, a little yeah. book that's sort of been yeah. going around. Tell us a little bit I, about that. Yeah, well, um, uh, I wrote a book called Who You Come Home, very much with the help of my um, my wife, Erin. It sort of stemmed out of some gatherings we were running back oh, in the mid-2000s, sort of around church history. You know, so we started off learning about, you know, your typical church history stuff, you know, learning about the Wesleys, the Whitfields, the Finneys, the Booths, and... Anyway, a dear sort of father in the faith, his name's Peter Robertson. He was speaking about his, who he calls his friends, uh, like, you know, St. Saint, Saint Francis of Assisi and uh, Benedict, you know, and all these, these dudes, he calls them his friends. And anyway, he was, he, he just sort of paused amidst, he, as he was talking and he turned around to Aaron and I and said, you've got to write a book. Anyway, we, we, we went from there and we started to sort of write on, you know, it's what would be sort of traditional Western church history. And then sort of after three months ran out of steam and just sort of didn't go anywhere. And anyway, it was the following year, which would have been 2008, that we literally stumbled into the history of the church in New Zealand and the stories that I heard day one from um, Dr. Alastair Rees. Uh, I just, you know, the brain just went, I was like, oh, and I, and I just knew, oh my goodness, this is what we have to write on because other people have written on this typical Western stuff. Mm. But I, you know, I, how can, you know, and I was like, how can I grow up in an organization my whole life and not know anything about the story of Christianity in New Zealand? And so I thought that's probably the thing that we should write on for particularly New Zealand Christian young people. So mm. um, that's what we set out to do. and. Um, and it's, it. um, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's a great book and I recommend it to everyone if you haven't read it get a copy. so I mean in this episode mate we want to I just want to create some space to imagine like what if you know what if we you know took seriously our, our commitment to the treaty and what would it look like for us to partner and walk side by side both Pakia and Te Ara Māori um, yeah. before we get into that I think the first question is I guess examining the problem of how we got here do you think like just recognize that the word colonization has become a bit of a buzzword for some people and some people don't actually sort of understand what that means um, they don't even engage with it because it seems like oh it's just that word that gets chucked out there do you think you could unpack that a little bit like how what is you know that might be an obvious question but what is colonization yeah. how is it still affecting us today uh, well essentially colonization is in our case a slow intentional systematic takeover of a location that you are foreign to, essentially. <laughs> you know, it's it's a slow usurping of a way of being that is local, that was in an area, and then an outsider comes in and slowly takes over and takes over the authority structure of that system and then forces the local system to become a part of the introduced system. Kind of like a virus, <laughs> you know. So colonization is very viral, um, but it's it's a slow, steady, thought through, systematic takeover of another of another space. Mm. So how does that affect us now? I mean, I know some people will be thinking, "Hey, like, I mean, that was then, you know, in our history, we've all moved past whatever yeah. happened in the past. Yeah, we can acknowledge bad things happened, but we're here today." 
we're all one people, right? So mm-hmm. do you see, how can you maybe bring that into today? Where do you see the problems sort of coming yeah, um, out and, and, and how do we put them back? Yeah, I mean, for a start, when people say that, they are talking about the past as if the past is something not important and something that we're not supposed to have a relationship with. It's like, no, you cut off, it's like you, you cut off that relative and say, you know, dear Miss, Mr. and Mrs. or auntie or cousin past, you know, piss off, don't really want to know you, whatever it is. And cause, because the primacy within the worldview is the future. Mm. You know, the primacy is the now and the primacy is moving into the future with stuff that feels good to us right now. So people who say that and who think that, um, they have a disconnect to the past because their cultural narrative says that the past is not important. And, and essentially that's the Western default. That's the Western thinking about time. You know, so oh, just, just forget about the past, let's move on. Whereas uh, an indigenous worldview, indigenous cultures, including the Māori world, has a very, very living connection to the past. So, you know, speaking in, speaking in general terms here, the, the Māori world has a strong worldview connection to the past. So the past is not distant, far away, like we're on top of the past. So the past is presently with us. The future orientation of the Māori worldview it's there, but it's not the main. Fo- it's not a main focus. It's a big focus, particularly in the light of our mokopuna, tamariki mokopuna, our children, our grandchildren. So we, we, we do. There is a future perspective. The Western perspective has very little connection to the past, but a strong orientation towards the future, a strong orientation to the myth of progress, mm-hmm. <laughs> so to speak. I think a biblical worldview. In this, you know, I think the Jews, the Hebrews, their culture has a great way of amalgamating the both. I think the Maori worldview is more closer to the Hebrew way of seeing time than what the Western way is. So I think there's amalgamation there. So anyway, that's to deal with the time of it. So the history of the treaty for Maori is alive right now. So the connection to our ancestors, our tupuna, our tipuna, is with a Māori right now. So we take their actions and we we want to hold those actions and then give mana or give strength to those actions today. So essentially what we know about what our ancestors agreed to in the Treaty of Waitangi, or what or should I say to be more particular in Tatiriti or Waitangi, so the Māori version, what our ancestors believed they were writing and signing and holding to at that time, we still agree with them today. Mm-hmm. And so that agreement hasn't been fully met or fully understood or fully perceived. So what makes it relevant today is because the issues that we perhaps might face as people and the issues that we might face as a nation really do stem back to those original injustices of the breach of the treaty. Much of the injustice that we might find today are a result as the breach of that initial breach of the treaty, you know, and when it came from a relationship and a partnership to essentially a colonial military takeover. So it's still relevant because those promises haven't been met. It's still relevant because our people 
are the ones that were I want to I want to use a swear word right now. <laughs> yeah, you know? no, let's just say the, the, our our people are the ones that were jacked up from the yeah, from yeah. The, from the agreement from the process, and our people were still living with the effects of that of that, that military and governmental takeover. So those injustices are very very much alive amongst our people today. Can you think of an example of, of one of those broken promises in the treaty that maybe happened back then? that you can still really clearly see um, how it's still not being met and causing great harm today? Yeah. So when we talk about this stuff, I want to answer it by first talking about the framework to which I'll give that answer. And to the framework to which we think about giving an answer. So, you know, a typical Don Brash-esque type of a Kiwi will go, oh, look, look, it's, it's very clearly stated in the treaty that sovereignty was given over, to, you know, to the, to the queen, you know, and they're, they're coming to it from the English text mm. and not coming into an understanding of the nuance uh, nor the spirit of what was being understood by our tūpuna at that time. Mm. So, uh, I mean, the, the, the clear and the obvious one is that Māori were not giving over our right to let's just say self-govern, you know, to actually make governing body decisions for our people with our own resource and with our own land. We were not giving away our land. That's very clearly. The treaty says that we hold on to our land for as long as we want to hold on to our land. So every breach of Crown beginning to write their laws that justified the crown taking the land is a breach of the treaty now the reason you know you know the reason why the land is perhaps the biggest one and the the most obvious one is because you know land is let's just say predominantly new zealand is a western nation right now right so in western economics is it's an economic theory that takes its collateral from land ownership according to the theories of john locke so Wealth in a Western mode for the last 300 years has been based on land ownership. Where you know where the generations that are seeing that transition from land to information, digital information, but but essentially the system is based on and value and wealth has been based on land ownership. So when you have you know essentially you know 96% of your land like stripped from you and taken from you your wealth and your ability to generate your wealth is taken from you as well so very very clearly that land i want to say land ownership but then even saying land ownership is also a pakia understanding if i could say land kaitiakitanga or if i could say land governorship which would be a much better worldview to look at it from a, from a way that the Māori world look at it. So the ability to govern the land, what the land is used for, who gets to use it, how it's used, all of that stuff has been stripped from the Māori world able to lead as the God-given right of the Māori world has been given from God to lead. That makes sense. Yeah. Do you see a connection? I mean, because we know, for example, um, homelessness statistics, uh, Māori whānau are disproportionately represented there, also Rangatahi Māori um, especially disproportionately represented in our homelessness population. Do you see some sort of connection between 
what has happened in our past to what we're, we've seen. Absolutely. The, right the, the root connection is the land. So the root connection is the land taken. Now, at this, you know, while it would be wonderful to be able to say, hey, let's give all the land back, first we should be able to give as much crown land as we possibly can back. So that's, that's a very practical way to be able to deal with some of this. But, of course, at the moment, that ain't going to happen. Well, it's not, or should I say that's not happening. But like I said to you before, the, the decision makers, the ones who hold the power to make the decisions for what happens to the land and goes on the land for everyone, I think to alleviate those poverty situations, we actually need to see the treaty come into what it was actually meant to be, and that was Māori decision-making and the, the Crown decision-making, making decisions together. For the last 180 years, Māori have been forced to make decisions through the Crown's mechanism. I, I sincerely believe that the original intention of the Spirit of God is for the Crown to filter their processes through an iwi Māori process. Mm. So I think there's the immediate alleviation, which is what you do with your job. Mm. The systemic alleviation is Māori taking our rightful places to be the decision makers on what happens with the land, 100% of it. How, how would that look? So I, I know there's, there's some people will say, hey, well, you know, aren't we there? We've got Māori in government. Look at, you know, Labour at the moment, one of the largest representations of Māori in their um, parliament. Aren't we there? Like, w what would it look like for that to happen? Is it happening, you know? No, every every single, you know, while, while our Māori people should, and, like, do and should run for parliament and all this sort of stuff and, like, into what our system does, essentially, essentially the system's flawed, right? Yep. It's the system that's flawed. Mm. So, you know, you could put the nicest... Māori into that position, they are still going to enter into the weight mm -hmm. of, the of the history of what that system, that, to use an English-Greek concept, that principality has done to the communities of Te Ao Māori. So essentially, the system's broke. Mm -hmm. The system is not meeting the true needs of our people. And if we can just take 180 years, if we take that as a, as a resume, then it doesn't have the ability to. The system itself needs to change. We, we, we messed with the system from going from first past the post to mixed member proportion, okay? So let's say we're jumping into the Pākehā system here. So the Pākehā system has seen in our lifetime, or my lifetime, I don't know if your lifetime, I can't quite remember. You know, we, we messed with our system to go from first past the post to a mixed member proportion. So what that has done for us is, let's, I mean, I'll use the good parts of it. The good parts of it is that it's given a greater representation for a broader range of New Zealanders to have some form of power and some form of say. So, so that, that's a cool thing. The negative side about our current Westminster government governing system, which uses the, mix, the MMP model, is that in its, I think it's good that we change every three years or our leaders have to reapply every three years. But the negative side of that is that it doesn't carry a long-term memory. Mm. Like, like, in other words, it doesn't carry past with it. With it. 
I mean, ultimately, what I believe in and, and, and what I ultimately hope for on a, on a systemic level is that that Crown Westminster system will enter into a partnership of iwi leadership, of tribal leadership, where our ancestors who hold the long stories, so they hold hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of history, and then particularly bring to a recollection the last 180 years of our bicultural partnership. I think when this system can come into a partner relationship together with an indigenous system, not an indigenous thinking that is forced to go through the Western system, but an indigenous system that is, is forced to relate to a Western system, which really is what the treaty is, Mm-hmm. then I think that's partly of the dream that is ultimately in the next 50 to 100 years going to actually truly, truly bring healing to future generations of New Zealand. Yeah. How, how do we get there? What's the um, next step? Yeah, the next step's education. Yeah, honestly, the continuing education. The next step is holding crown to account over treaty grievances. Honestly, a, a big step is actually changing the heart of every single New Zealander. (laughs) Like, you know, so, you know, because ultimately the Crown is supposed to be doing what the people want, you know, what the people desire. So when our people can actually desire the fact that we want an alternative way of being, an alternative way of defining ourselves, of operating ourselves, then when that desire awakens, then essentially we'll, we'll continue to see the, the system change. Now, my, my ability to even think this way obviously comes from, you know, 50 years of history of the generation of Māori leaders in the 1970s actually beginning to protest radically and bringing about change. So the ability for me to think that has come off the, the bat of a 50-year process. Mm. You know, the fact that we're even dialoguing this and that this dialogue is going to go out to other people of our generation beyond us. There were, there were only, there's very little people thinking that way back in the 70s. So mm. the decade of the 70s is known as the Māori Renaissance, you know, where that generation of Māori leaders just began to go, bang, now nah, we're over this. You know, we're going to bring about change. And so... We can see there that this is this is this is the long term game. Now, everything that I'm saying right now, I mean, I, I guess I wasn't expecting to go this deep politically, but it is, you know, I want to make it clear that like this is a, this is a political fakaro, and I, I believe that my Christian faith, if I look at what my spiritual ancestors believed in and I particularly think of Henry and Mary and Williams, Mm. of his brother, William Williams, while I think about what they believe for and hope for, I believe that what I've just said aligns to what in their hearts they hope for and long to see. So imagine that, if if you would, a little bit more, like how would the system look? Can you think of some examples? Yeah, I mean, I guess... dealing with some of the issues that we're dealing with you know i i I think you know we have a 
a system based on on the Westminster system out of England. Mm. The American system has a has an interesting system of the government that is in the presidency, the Congress, and the Senate. And there's this there's this three tiered system that is supposed to be in conversation. The sad thing is that the last twenty years that that system has learned how to eat itself. So it's kind of eating itself from the inside out. So it's obviously showing its weaknesses. You know, tribal systems have, you know, hapu and iwi systems where, you know, th- those who uh, have a long-term connection to a local geographical area come into relationship and come into partnership together. So I think that somehow our own iwi have to come up with a, a national forum, a way of almost like a combo of whakapapa leadership mixed with democratic leadership, which I guess is how trust boards operate today, but coming up with a national structure of organising ourselves, and then that structure needs to partnership with the current crown structure. Mm. Now, you might say, why? Um, my, my why is because I, I want to see the time where New Zealand, where all of our laws that pass through Parliament and hopefully voted for by the public, but essentially all of those laws are thought through, through and presented through an Indigenous framework. Mm-hmm. Because an Indigenous framework of thinking is different to a Western way of thinking. A Western way of thinking separates and categorizes everything. So we separate spirit from matter. We separate economics from ethics. It's not that they don't dialogue just that they only dialogue when it's convenient Mm. because essentially economic profit is the goal Mm. not sustainable sustainable communities is not the goal Mm. Um, so within a maori framework i think sustainable communities and sustainable environment is primary the goal and our economics must serve those things Mm. So I think that's some of the big things about why I think we need to see things happen on a governing structure so that everything that filters down, in other words, every decision that is made for our country from from economics to housing to the environment to, you know, to social welfare, like it all gets filtered through in an indigenous lens, which, which holds the community the economy and holds the environment together in a, in a mutual relationship, mm-hmm. and it, and at the moment the Western world doesn't do that, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I think COVID is a great. We, we've seen it with COVID, right? We stop the economy. What happens? The environment heals itself. You know, so we stop the the hustle and the bustle of the busyness of what we need to do to run our economy. And all of a sudden, around the globe, the environment we actually see with our own eyeballs the, the environment healing. And therefore, this generation of the globe has, we've actually, we can honestly say we've seen with our eyes the healing of the earth in just seven short weeks. Yet, level, we're now locked, crossed into level two, and the priority is the, the economy, right? And then already we're seeing, and I'm not saying that it shouldn't be. But what I'm saying is the how we do it needs to change. It's, it's, it's the how. And the Māori world has the specific keys of the how you do it. 
Do you think too, Marty? I mean, if we look at, I guess, that value in the economy and how it sort of gets filtered, um, a big narrative driving that is capitalism, right? Yeah. Do you think Tia Māori has a critique of capitalism or would, would replace that in some way? Like, what, what's your thoughts um, on that? Yeah, I think the Māori world definitely has a critique on capitalism. If I would, you know, if, if, if you bear it down, say the root goodness in capitalism is fantastic. You know, everybody using their creativity and sharing their creativity without control and being able to exchange that creativity for something that's beneficial to them and their neighborhoods. So that's awesome. I think the inherent goodness that is in socialism that sets the priority of the community as the first thing. I think that's beautiful. I think that's super biblical, just Mm. as I think self-expression and self-creativity is biblical as well. I leaned over to my wife the other day and I just said to her, you know what, I think that the, what, what has happened within capitalism is that essentially you've basically got comp- companies that are their own little communist nations that are stripping communities bare, you know? like mm. So what the negative aspects of capitalism, what it's doing is if you look at them, essentially they're just hideous communists mm. that are coming into their shareholders shareholders are the priorities screw the workers not necessarily screw but we want the minions to Mm -hmm. gather and it's just what the worst of communism has done Mm -hmm. and essentially what communism is is the worst of communism is it's just it's just what capitalists do except they centralize it I, I think you've got, I don't know where I jumped into from this idea, but anyway, forgive me, Brian, if I've got That's it. great, that's great. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think that they've lost it. And what I, what, what I love about, I think the Māori world has a good sense of socialism within it and also the freedom for the self-expression to happen, you know, which is how in some forms our, you know, people build up their mana by their self-exploits and stuff like this. So that there is a, but, but, there's, but there's a basis that your individualization is for the community. It's for the community. So your ability to produce your wealth should be for the community. We flip over to the Western world and Western capitalism. We have taken Adam Smith's pursuit of self-interest and we've forgotten that when he used that term self-interest the idea of being a part of a community was just assumed Mm. you know so so he used the term of you know this of um the invisible hand is guided by self-interest when he said that this is my understanding i could be wrong but when 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 he when he said that he, he his time in the 1700 knew that they were a part of a community. So it was your self-expression for the benefit of the community. But over 250, 300 years is that self-interest for the community has become self-interest for self. Mm. Right. So unfortunately that's been the premise of the last couple of hundred years of capitalism, you know? Mm. And so the primary function of capitalist economy is for self-interest, mm-hmm. not for the interest of the collective. Mm. Yeah, some good thing, bro. So, 
if we got some, you know, our listeners are, are thinking, all right, like, starting to get a hold of that dream that you're painting for us, mate. Like, what are the steps that they can take? What's the, the small things that they can do to be a part of working for yeah, this Yeah, okay, right. Yep. Uh, I mean, for, for a start, okay, your, your mum and dad, mm. uh, my mum and dad, we can forgive them in their botching of te reo. Okay. We can forgive them in the fact that they have been smoked by the colonizing machine. For you and I, and for those beyond us, under us, coming up under us, all of us should be bilingual by the time I become an old man. Right? So give it 20 to 30 years, then this country should be bilingual. So some practical steps that you can that we can do is that your listeners should learn te reo Māori. Not because it's the language of global economy, which has been the excuse that government has made for eons of years. In other words, no, why would you learn te reo? Because it's not the language that China speaks and that's where the economy is going, right? No, you, you, need to, you need to learn te reo because it'll change the way that you think about everything. And learning a language, then your worldview concept, how you think about things will actually begin to change to the point where you'll discover actually you're thinking more like the Chinese, even though you can't speak the Chinese language, you're thinking more like the Chinese than what you are as just a soul holder of the English language only. Your worldview concepts will begin to change. So learning the language, educating yourself, educate yourself on the story, educate yourself on the Treaty of Waitangi. Essentially, our generation and those under us, we can no longer be ignorant, particularly for us who are in, in the church. We can no longer be ignorant of our complicit silence within the colonizing machine. We just, we just can't. You know, we have to be propelled to be on the forefront of poverty, right? But at the same time, it's the governing and the capitalistic structures that keep forcing over that poverty. They're the ones that keep it running, you know? So at the same time, we have to share our clothes and share our food. But at the same time, we've got to be politically savvy to with the spirit of God to speak into truth and justice in those realms of politics as well, you know? So I think the big one would be te reo, eh? mm. is that we have to become comfortable with the language. Um, do, you, ooh, do you have to be fluent? You know, I know, part, you know, part of my reticence is because I'm a le- you know, I'm learning. I'm, you know, as a Māori, I'm learning my own reo. Mm. And I know how hard it is. <laughs> you know, so it's a, it's, it's a tough thing to do. Mm. Awesome, bro. I mean, as we close, just a, I guess a last point, like if you know, there, there might be some of our listeners, and this is the first time engaging in this quarter, right? And um, they might be feeling really uncomfortable since they've sort of just entered it. What would you say to them? Is there anything you would like to leave with them if this is the beginning of their journey and they're maybe hearing some of this for the first time? Yeah. You know, for me, I, I can't deny in my life that I have met the spirit of Jesus. Yeah that God has showed up in my life and it has been everything that I've said to you today, Aaron, has been the overflow of my talking and my dialoguing with God 
through prayer, through karakia, through research, and through dialogue with friends and through, through study. So my overwhelming, my personal fire, the personal fire in my belly is not because I'm an angry Maori, right? Like, to, to the best of my ability, I don't think I'm an angry Maori. I, I, get, I get angry when I read some injustices, but I, honestly, my passionate walk with Christ has been a compelling that to go, I must go this way. Mm. And in saying that, in other words, my, my faith is deeply, deeply connected to, to the ground. In other words, to this land. Mm. You know, we've, we've grown up in a, I've grown up in a spirituality that's very disconnected from the land. I've grown up in Christian traditions that would cast out Maori spirits, or should I say cast out Maori spirits, right? You know, in other words, that anything that looked Maori was of the devil. And I would say like Christianity has been duped. It's been tricked. It's been blinded to the fact that our Lord Jesus, the Spirit of God, has been deeply and innately working in this land for a long time outside of those Christian languages and Christian structures and working with our people, I would want to say to everyone, man, when, when you begin to enter into Maori spaces, you will find Jesus in ways that you never knew. Mm. And you, your walk with God will be richly rewarded as mine has been, you know, 22 years full-time ministry. And when I lay it down for a certain time and I go and learn my language on a marae where I'm no longer a pastor, I'm no longer a mission leader, I'm just a pepe pow-pow, I'm just a little baby learning the language. Man, did I find Jesus. Man, did I find Christ there, you know? So I, I would just want to say to people that everything that I'm saying is coming out of my relationship with God. Mm. And God is the one that I know for me has fired this in my belly. You know, and I think he's had to do that because I have, I have been disconnected from my people. I've been disconnected from the trauma of grief, you know, because I've grown up Barker. But I'm grateful that the Spirit of God and in connecting with him, he's been able to share both the grief, but also the aspiration and the hope that I believe God carries for our country. Yeah. Oh, good, man. So there's a lot for us to sort of unpack and, and think through there. I really want to thank you, man, for coming and sharing your Africano <laughs> and yeah, giving us your time today. Um, yeah, me nice, bro. Appreciate you, man. Cheers. So, All right, that was Jay Ruka. Not gonna lie, I listened to this one twice. Mm. Once a while ago and once today. And I mean, in between, I tried to <laughs> research as much as I could and there was just so much I had to go through. I realized there's so much I don't know. There's so much I don't understand about the treaty, about all well, that agreement that was made between the Crown and Māori and then how that was broken. I mean, I thought I knew <laughs> the from what I, the little bit we spent at school Spoke a little bit in one of my papers at uni once, but there's still so much I didn't know. And, it, and you kind of feel the weights of it. Mm. You really start to think about it because it's, it's big, you know? 
it's not a fleeting thing and, and so often we put it to the back of our minds and we, and we push it away like jay was saying we we're always looking forward we don't really have that connection to the past mm-hmm. so often we push that away what is your experience as a growing up Pākehā, growing up as a white person in new zealand what was your experience mm. when it comes when it comes to in relation to the treaty yeah to be honest bro like i grew up really ignorant to it and i guess like all those narratives that we have around maori gave up sovereignty you know we were the victors you know all those stories were the stories that i thought were true right or you know i guess on the other side was like oh actually new zealand we did really well because we had a treaty and you know we treated maori fairly and you know i don't know what everyone's complaining about like those were the narratives that were swirling around me as i grew up Mm. and um yeah i mean like you said it's heavy right like when i first started to come into a bit of knowledge around this yeah it's it's humbling and oh yeah you feel the weight of it you know like when you first start to recognize actually how much wrong was done and how much um has not been addressed and how much hurt is still out there and then how many people are still suffering because of things that my ancestors did i was reading a book this week about what happened at parihaka and i mean as i read about how the crown just systematically cheated and stole and made up laws that were illegal basically just to take land it just struck me that this was all done for me you know like they were making space so that my ancestors could come and settle the land i mean that was yeah Hmm. it's a hard realization when you start to recognize it that your space here in this whenua the reason you're here like it came at a real cost you know for me for Pakia, for my whanau for for those who um who also i guess like me share that that heritage our space here the the, the whole fact that we're here has come at the expense of the suffering of others and not suffering that's gone away it's still here it's still very evident in our every day yeah i mean new zealand's a, a young country still right yeah compared to to most and i mean it wasn't that long ago if you think about it that it was still frowned upon for you to speak maori and stuff like mm-hmm. that it's still um sort of displacement it wasn't that long ago right. well, what what about you barry like so you i mean your perspective is a bit different you've come from south africa colored south african coming into new zealand you've got your own experiences with i guess colonization in your land how does that impact on the way you view all this or even what you see coming to new zealand i was quite young i was 13 and i'd never really i'd experienced some of the a little bit of racism when i was younger um, because we're still coming off of apartheid i was four when mandela became president so there was still sort of you know a little bit of racism here and there but i never really had understanding of colonialism and when you first arrive you don't know anything. You don't know anything about the treaty. You don't know anything about Māori. You're, everything you learn is from the ads, the immigration videos and all that kind of stuff. It kind of show, shows a little bit of Māori culture and that's about it. And one of the first things, some of the first things I heard about Māori when I arrived was always negative things. There's a Nigerian writer, Chimamanda Adichie, who talks about the dangers of the single story. And one of the examples she used in that TED 
there was a, there was a TED talk she did. And one of the examples she used was the example of the Native Americans where you, you might hear first about the you know arrows that the Native Americans shot and build your view around that before hearing the stories about the British who landed first. And, you know, that's pretty powerful. Yeah, so my views on Māori were always that they had everything handed to them, like you were saying, that they're lazy. You watch Police 10 7, you always see every time it's someone and they're like, oh, it's a male Māori, Polynesian, something, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that's kind of the view you, you, you build at first. And I never really understood the impact that colonialism can have on a people. Even back in South Africa, I still didn't even start thinking about that until I was a bit older. When you start looking back at South Africa and, and start seeing the, the crime and you always feel like the country's just going down, you know? And I hear a lot of South Africans saying, you know, trying to blame it on black people. But what, once you realize the, the damage that was done, they weren't given an education. They weren't, you know, their land was taken away from them. They weren't put in, in, put in places to succeed. And you see that same kind of thing with Māori. Their land was taken away from them. They were forced to pretty much drop their culture and when we are just like as jc just looking forward and not uh, recognizing that we have a relationship with the past we can't properly deal with the effects of the past if that makes sense yeah we got to recognize that there's definitely a reason that some subset of people are where they are mm. because of something that happened yeah yeah i mean that's the big thing hey like and this is i think something that i found real helpful is recognizing I guess the difference in worldviews, and I think one of the reasons, I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons why as Pākehā we, we struggle with this conversation. One is it's a hard journey for us to go on because we don't want to admit that we have, we're complicit in what's happened. We don't want to admit that, I don't know if I want to say responsibility, but that our ancestors were involved in that and that actually, unless we're actively involved in undoing that harm or at least recognizing it, that we're still benefiting from it. I mean, either way, we're still benefiting from it. So like our, our culture is very much, Pākehā culture, I believe, is very much focused on looking to the future. We don't want to look back. Um, we want to just pretend like the future is the only thing there is. You know, let's just keep looking forward, keep moving forward, progress, progress, progress. But I mean, as we're progressing, um, we are leaving a litany of heartbreak and pain behind us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think Jay, Jay really sort of talked a bit about that, eh? around like just how our past is in our present, you know, like that, that, that worldview around actually the past isn't gone. We're still living amongst it. It's, it's part of where we are now. Yeah. And sometimes we're lucky. Some of us are lucky enough to not have to deal with it. You know what I mean? I'd have to experience it. And so we don't think about it. Yeah. As a, as an immigrant, I was just watching Patriot Act the other day. Oh no, I think it was just a video that they put up on YouTube. I don't know if you've seen it. It's on Netflix. No. The Sun Menage. It's really cool. Actually. Yeah, you should watch it. They talk about a whole bunch of different topics, but yeah. this one, this little video they released in particular was about George Floyd and everything that's going on mm. over there in the States at the moment. And he was talking about, because he's Indian, so he's talking about just the Asian community standing up with with the protesters and standing with the Black Americans. Um, mm. Pretty much, he was saying, you know, we can't just stand on the sidelines and say, well, look, this is a black and white thing, uh, black versus white thing. And I think it's the same with us as immigrants. Um, he he mentioned, sorry, and there that 
when you become a citizen, you don't just own the country's excellences. You also mm. own their failures. You know, you don't just get to enjoy the good stuff. You also take part in the bad stuff. Uh, that really struck home with me mm. because, because you do like as, as a immigrant, you, you come here to, I guess, have a good life, better life. Usually you, you're able to become a citizen or resident because you have certain qualifications and all that kind of stuff. So you just, you're just trying to build a better future. You're trying to look to mm. the future, but you're coming to a country that still has to deal with things in the past. Mm. And whether you like it or not, you're, you're involved in that. You have to be involved. Mm. And that's the challenge. Like, I think that this is something that we all, I mean, and more specifically, I think white people and, and Pakeha is that the system that's been created. I mean, we don't have to have been involved. Our ancestors didn't have to be involved to benefit from it, you know? Um, we still benefit from the world that has been created for us. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I was speaking to a, a friend of mine this week, and, um, yeah, she said something that really struck me. We're talking about sort of tokenism and, you know, like honouring honoring to honoring and, and all this sort of stuff, but she said to live to tiriti, and by that she meant, you know, to live in honor of it and, and to live, you know, what it means to follow the treaty and to uphold it. To live to tiriti is to suffer. It is to, you know, fight for justice until it kills you. And that, like, kind of hit me because as I reflected on that and I felt it, you know, like, and she's someone who stands up for her people and stands up for justice and equality and, and has given her life to that, yeah. But as I reflected on that, I thought, hey, like, that shouldn't be the way it is. It's true because there is so much justice and inequality in this nation and a lot of it goes back to this treaty which we don't honour in so many ways, but it shouldn't be the way it is. It shouldn't be a battle to uphold that treaty. It should just be what we do. Yeah. So I think we've got a, I mean, we know we've got a very, very long way to go on this. What's the, um, you know, he talks about like Māori being involved. Mm. decision making like with the government being in partnership with the crown mm. or the crown being partnership with Marty maybe <laughs> yes yeah, yeah, sorry <laughs> see I, I i very much feel like i'm not qualified to be talking about this at all one not being moldy two not yeah not fully understanding the history but i'm just gonna throw this out there anyways can you do this kind of thing without having a large percentage of the population being behind it yeah one can you and, and two, should you? Mm. Because, yeah, like if it was, if this was a document and, I mean, can you call it a founding document? Yeah, okay, yeah it yeah. would be our founding document. Yeah. yeah, so it's like our founding document, right? So it has to be on it. It's something that has to be on it by everyone. Yeah. Kind of like a, whether you like it or not. <laughs> yeah. But then also, is that something that can now be done? Oh, we kind of passed that. Mm that point where it's possible i think like this is a conversation that we need to unpack deeper that we're talking about like a, a a series actually we might do on this where we actually have a deeper corridor around what this would mean to do reconciliation and justice in this space mm. the thing i come back to is like okay the way forward that's there's a lot of different points here but a treaty is a treaty yeah time limit doesn't necessarily mean it disappears. And that's the thing is Pakia, we are always, you know, like groups like Hobson's Pledge and, and others, which are, you know, saying, well, that's in the past. Well, I mean, just because the agreement was in the past doesn't mean it's void. There were promises made by the Crown that haven't been upheld and have actually been broken. 
And I think we have an obligation, a moral obligation to move forward and to, to seek a way to honor that. Yeah, I don't think it matters how far back it was. Hmm. There's still an obligation to um, uphold it. If you think about like, if you made an agreement with someone and they broke it and stole all your stuff, and then you came across them in 50 years, you were still living on the street. Like, would you still want that stuff back? You know, you mm. still want, you know, cause like you still want justice, right? Yeah. I mean, people are still suffering today because of what the crown did in well, my name, you know, what they did for me. They still deserve justice. And we've got a lot of work to do. Um, and, and in the more, I, I only know a tiny bit, but the more I read about um, our history, the more I read about what the crown did, and how that all played out, I mean, the more infuriating it is. Like, you can see why there's still a lot of anger and a lot of hurt because it wasn't right. I mean, and I can see how we could benefit from having multi values as a framework, you know, mm. for our decision making, particularly when it comes to sustainability. I don't know why, but something that always stuck with me was the stories of how Maori would. Um, like look after their fishing areas, you know, they'd fish in one area for a certain amount of time and then they'd leave to allow it to regenerate and, and fish in another spot. And then I think about how we're just out there. <laughs> now our fisheries just trawling the crap out of everything. And you are seeing, starting to see groups and, and movements form that are like, whoa, wait, we can't be doing this. We need to have time for our environment to heal. Mm. And Jay was talking about how like in, <laughs> during the lockdown once, while the economy wasn't running, we just saw the environment healing. Yeah, having having that a part of our framework and our way of thinking. You know how long we've been saying we're clean and green and now we're starting to realize we're not? Yeah. And so it's you know it's a chance for us to really change. There's yeah, so much in this conversation with Jay that we could keep going on and on through. Like I guess if you're like new to this conversation, I really want to encourage you to get his book to where you come home. Really, really um, helpful. Like contribution to this whole conversation and i don't know like about you Dale, like the takeaway for me as we keep having these conversations is that we need to understand our history if you want to like your first step especially as pakia yeah we need to understand our history we need to know what brought us to this space and i think that if that's a piece of work we can all start doing and taking some responsibility for yeah well, we'll keep on yeah we'll keep on packing this conversation there's going to be so much more we can talk about in this but yeah, let us know sort of what you're thinking, um, what are your thoughts, what are the things that are challenging you through this through this conversation. And yeah, I look forward to further conversations on this topic, man. It's a big one. Mm. Yeah, all of a sudden I'm like <laughs> super keen to dig into this. A bit yeah. More. yeah. Awesome. Well, once again, it's late. Coffee's cold. We better go. <laughs> <laughs> you had enough of us, I'm sure. <laughs> Anyway, thanks for listening, team. We look forward to checking out next week. Okay, thanks. You've been listening to Wind Lambs of Silent, the podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you are listening, and join the conversation by following us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. The music from this podcast is from the album Dissonance by Jess Jackson and Leon Shelley. Listen to more from these artists on Spotify.